Hi, this is Mimi and welcome to my podcast, The Lovely Becoming. Today's guest is the amazing Wednesday. You may have known them as M and you recently changed your name and legally too. And I'm excited for you to share a bit of your heart behind the name change. Um, a little tidbit, when you reached out to share your new name with me, I felt so honored and grateful. And my first thought was we have to re-record the intro. Like this feels really important to me and... <laughs> I've had this podcast on my mind, as you know, because it is really hard to set up a Zoom and not be in the dark and like just chat. Anyways, <laughs> when I saw you post about asking others to do kind of a similar thing to reach out for re-recording intros, I thought to myself, gosh, I wish you didn't have to ask. I wish it was just offered to you and it just didn't really feel like a huge deal in the sense of like, why do you have to ask for this? And I thought about how much it made sense that this is a step in getting closer to embodiment and your most authentic self, which we'll talk about in the podcast, but I'd love for you to share about what this means to you. Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes first, like we ask for things because we're afraid people aren't going to offer them. And I think that's like a really like trans person thing is to either never ask and know that you're going to be disappointed or to hope that in asking people prove you wrong, which they beautifully have. Mm -hmm. uh, Wednesday was like a joke nickname growing up. I don't think it would surprise anybody that I was like the really weird goth kid from like age five who like pulled the heads off their dolls and like <laughs> thought it was funny or thought they looked better that way. If psychiatrists are listening, you cannot have my address. Uh, you know, part of growing up with older parents was like watching what you know we would call nick at night and what they called like mm -hmm. normal tv and the adams family was a tv show and what a lot of people don't realize because now there's a netflix series and there were the movies is that like one the adams family has been around since 1938 they were a new yorker times times um like little cartoon strip that ran for 50 years it was one of the longest running cartoons in the new yorker for a really long period of time and it was picked up into a TV show partially because of the way that it really like examined traditional family values in a time period where traditionally traditional family values meant very white and religiously and sexually repressed. Children were to be seen and not heard. You married off your daughters. Your son found nice girls. And that was the end of it. And here we have these two kids who are literally the embodiment of quirky sociopaths, right? <laughs> we're like trying to cut each other's heads off. Mom and dad actually are obsessively in love with each other, right? And even the provocative in ways that weren't important to people during that time to be seen publicly. And what's so funny is like my my favorite part of the new netflix series is this whole prom dance that everyone's going wild about because i recognize some of the dance from when wednesday did her dance in the tv show with her uncle and something about also seeing wednesday with her uncle and and missing my uncle very terribly and having that kind of relationship of being weird together growing up like it all just kind of made sense and you know you kind of live your whole life when you have a name that you want that isn't the one you were given afraid of disappointing people of choosing the wrong name of you know what that all means and so told my dad this is what I wanted to do and my dad said it's your name you should get to do what you want with it in fact every 18 year old should literally be told like we kind of got to choose for you because you couldn't say anything but I mean if this doesn't feel like it's yours or like it fits you you get to make a choice 
but we treat this as such a big thing and it was really cool to have it be a celebrated thing but also like a of course you want to do that everyone should get to do that this should not be just a queer only subject right i know people that are cis and hetero that change their names because of trauma with family because they had a name they preferred growing up because they wanted to and they now understood they can so this is kind of like my chance to not only give that to myself and honor all of those little pieces of history for me that feel important to the name but also to be like yeah I'm afraid of what everyone thinks and actually it doesn't matter it's my name and we each get a name and we each get to decide what we want to do with it mm. and I think that that's okay and I think I get to choose how much of that story I share and don't share and I love that I get to share that here with you oh, beautiful I feel like this is so cool because we recorded this a couple weeks ago and I'm thinking of connections to our conversation about pronouns and how it feels like a name is such an embodiment of the different parts and pieces and connections to different people in your life. And that is just so beautiful and amazing. Thanks. Thank you for being on and for the gift that you are to this world. Oh. I feel like you're just um, amazing. Thanks. Well, I feel very lucky that we get to be two magical people together. I hope you all so enjoy this podcast episode. It's going to be revolutionary and life-changing and amazing. And have a good listen. Let us know what you think. Tell us about yourself for the listeners. What do you do? What do you love? Oh, this is where I'm supposed to say things about myself that make people uh -huh. want to listen to me. Career-wise, I'm a gender-diverse art therapist. I run the country's first LGBTQ eating disorder IOP PHP that's run by queer people for queer people. I have a private practice where I do consulting and education. Sometimes I teach at the graduate level in art therapy programs. <laughs> I know. I'm like, as I say things to people, I'm like, wow, I have no life and one very specific special interest. Relatable. <laughs> I have a wonderful partner who is also an art therapist who also works with a gender diverse community doing recovery work. And I am an animal parent. I have three cats, Calvin, Kazoo, and Squiggles. I hope they're listening. My dog, Pinball Wizard, he can't really listen because he's blind and kind of deaf. That's okay. A bunny named Victor Bunkle that we call Baby Bick. <laughs> I know. <laughs> And I spend a lot of time with my parents. I spend a lot of time collecting photos of my nephew, who's the only child that I like, and making art in my little house. I just kind of stay in my little corner of the world. And like, I don't know, I'm grateful people want to listen to what I have to say. Oh, a hundred percent. I just feel lucky that we had this lovely dinner where we got to meet in real life last year. And I just like, it was amazing. Oh my gosh, those rice balls and that conversation, like those two things were literally when everyone's like, what did you take away from the conference? I was like, Mimi and rice balls for life. Truly, if you are ever in Boston, there's this Marriott in Newton, mozzarella rice balls, cheesiest, gooeyest, most delicious. Shout out to them because yes. I, it was amazing. It was, it was like, like soul- refueling after giving all that energy all day it was like more than just food it was life yeah it really was 
Oh my gosh. When I think about people and the work of therapy, I think about identifying and understanding all the things we were taught to believe, the ways we were told to act, the messages we integrated because of our wounds, and taking off all of those layers to grow closer to our most authentic self in a world that is harsh to that softness. How do you become more embodied and closer to your authentic self? Oh my gosh, cry a lot. (laughs) Go to a lot of therapy. Yes. (laughs) I mean, I tell everyone, like, I, I secretly think my therapist listens to everything that I do and doesn't tell me because she has the best boundaries of any therapist I know. So Carrie, if you're listening, I love you. Thank you. You made this career possible. This has been like, as for most people, right? Like this lifelong journey of like unlearning so much toxicness from all the generations before us, so much trauma from all the generations before us, like just so much nonsense. And I think that I am really good at presenting super embodied to people. I think that I make it look easier than it is now. Mm -hmm. And I think getting there for me was like really, really painful. There was this period in my life that I'm not super proud of in my super early twenties where like, I really only valued myself for my body and the compliments that I got from people, right? Not just when I lost weight, but when I dressed a certain way, when I went out partying with friends, like I needed this constant validation of my physical self. And I didn't like myself because that's not how you learn to like yourself. You don't learn to like yourself from external validation. So I jumped back into therapy and like dealt with my eating disorder and a bunch of my other stuff as I was like finishing school and you know, really came to realize that if I didn't create the internal system that I needed for myself, nothing was going to happen. Like my mom is not available because she has dementia. I need to create an internal mom because if you can't do that for yourself and you're always looking for other people to heal your wound for you, how can you be embodied? Because you're not being in your body. Mm. (laughs) And I don't know. I feel like it's actually really, really hard. And I feel we live in a world that doesn't want us to be embodied. And so I always tell everyone I come from punk rock politics of like, for lack of better words, fuck you and fuck the system. So part of of this for me was being embodied actually meant living to those values that I have always found were so important, which is I am me in this body surviving in spite of the system, not because of it. Wow. Embodied is a big word. Yeah, it is. What does it mean to you? So it means to both be able to be present in your physical body, but to also be aware of everything that is about your body and that it holds. And also to be aware of both the privilege and lack of privilege that body holds and the power that it has in the world. Right. So like, I recognize I'm white. And by virtue, I have a lot more privilege than most people. It doesn't matter if I'm disabled. It doesn't matter if I'm trans. At the end of the day, I have the biggest protective factor of all human beings on this planet. Now I have other factors that kind of make that protective factor less protective. And I can choose what I disclose of that to people and what I don't. And I can choose how I use that power and how I don't. Because I am in my body, I am able to make active choices about how I use it. When we're not present in our body, we do things that we don't even realize we're doing in power dynamics with other people. Oh, 
I know. Sparks a lot of thoughts about kind of that connect connection and that important tie to yourself and understanding yourself to show up with others is really important. I mean, the people in my life that I love the most, you being one of them, are it's true. It's so true. Are people that I think work with me to strive to that every day and in every interaction we have together. So there's a level of authenticity and a knowing that we get to that is like so beautifully deep and intimate that I value so much more than like surface friendships and acquaintances. And I would rather have friends that are thousands of miles away that I can call or text or pick up with and can't see every day than I would someone that's next door that I can say hi to and I know what their life looks like, but we don't have that connection because we haven't worked on the fact that connectedness is actually part of learning to be in your body. Yeah. And regulating your system has been a big theme in my experiences this year. And something about that word, what we hold feels really important too. I mean, right. So every time I say that phrase and someone says that phrase, I actually think of some family history nerd. And I think I come from people that were. So I think of how like my dad's mom's family actually came over on the Mayflower, which is kind of embarrassing to be real as a, like someone who's really into social justice. I'm like, wow, you are the ultimate colonizer. There are genes in there that in my opinion, are the worst of history. Right. But then I also come from really strong Italian immigrants, really strong Jewish immigrants, really strong people that came over from Germany prior to World War II, there's this rich history. And part of that rich history is also a rich history of trauma Mm -hmm. and disenfranchisement and also growth and war and all of those things. And we hold all of that in us. Yes. And what's really cool about that is you can tap into the good pieces of that and recognize the negative pieces of that and choose what of that you want to use as your like core for your power in the world And I feel like sometimes people that either aren't aware or are aware and choose to not use that idea of what we hold for good. That's when we see things happen in the world like we're seeing right now. Huh, that's super interesting. And I I think in my head, something that comes to mind is this idea where older generations are like, you didn't have it this bad. You know, I went through this and that and the other. Not recognizing that all of that is passed down and all of that is accumulated and built up into new generations. And I think that's part of why there's so much sense of distress and chaos because we're not only not acknowledging it, but we're not allowed to feel like we can talk about it and work through it. And so it's suppressed and pushed down and made worse and compounded in that. Oh, I mean, a thousand percent. I look at it like if your nervous system's always in fight or flight, but everyone tells you no, you forget what that fight or flight feels like, Mm. right? There's generational gaslighting that happens to our nervous system, in my opinion, right? That I just see keep happening over and over and over again. And there is a point where I'm like, you're right. I didn't live during the Great Depression. I don't know what it's like to not have food. I certainly would know what it was like to be in the Holocaust or be a slave, even if I came from people that had those experiences, it is not as bad as those things. Mm -hmm. But the big thing that we learn in trauma work, right, is like my big T and your big T can feel very different things. Mm -hmm. For some people, their big T is a car accident that I would laugh at. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And for some people, their big T is being human trafficked. But if your system responds to either of those big T's the same way, it doesn't matter what society says of that experience. It's your body's reaction to it. A hundred percent. Generational, um, what was the word? Generational trauma. Gaslighting. Gaslighting, yes. Double G. I like that. Coin that. <laughs> Perfect. TM. No one steal it. Oh my gosh. Um, okay. This is very, very important. This is actually one of the things that got me thinking about having you on the podcast way back when we were at this lovely mozzarella ball dinner. <laughs> so good. <laughs> I want them so, so bad. <laughs> You mentioned this incredible metaphor about our younger selves. And I don't want to share too much because the way you say it is just incredible. If you're jogged by memory and my memory serves me correctly, um, it's this theory that however old your trauma was when you started, we actually have to go back and relive that age Mm -hmm. and those things that we missed out that trauma took from us in order to move on. So if I'm working with someone who's in their thirties and their first trauma was at three, I would ask them, what do they remember at three missing out on? And how can we have that in the therapeutic space as an art therapist, where we can start to heal that wound through that process of play together and then move forward in through each of those moments until they feel like that thing that they've been searching for has been satisfied in an appropriate and safe way in the therapeutic relationship. I mean. I think I probably used the age three because that's the first trauma I had that I can remember. And it took me years to go back and have that. And what's cool is to be able to go back and have that. There are now foods I can eat that I was afraid to eat because of that time in my life. There were smells and games and sounds that I couldn't handle that now I might hear or smell or see something and go, oh yeah, that was from a trauma. But it literally is like, oh, that was from a trauma, but we're good now. Like, you're okay, kid. We got this. We worked through that. And that feels like such a powerful thing as a human being to not let those things hold you anymore and hold you back. Mm. And it's also a privilege to be able to work through those things because I know so many people that just haven't had that opportunity. Yeah. I feel like it takes it a step more than reparenting yourself where that's really also an important aspect, but really taking the time to honor each developmental milestone that you didn't get to experience and it kind of reminds me of how sometimes when we're older we're like oh I didn't get a real childhood like it was sped up because I had to grow up too fast and slowing things down to be like okay how can we feel taken care of that's a big one for me is I want to have a longer time where I don't feel the responsibility of I have to get a job right now I have to do this and that because I I felt like I didn't have enough time to live into being a child and being taken care of. And I mean, it's hard, right? We can't go back and ask our parents for a do-over because I'm sure our parents would like a do-over too. And, you know, I think of, so I'm going to out myself. Disney is not my favorite thing. And I really respect the adults that go, I had a really shitty childhood. I want to have a really great adulthood. And they take themselves to Disney and they go ham. I'm like, that was therapeutic. Those photos on Instagram, that was therapy happening because you were not robbing yourself of the things that you already felt robbed of. Because what's more traumatic is to be robbed of it and gaslight yourself into thinking you still don't deserve it as an adult. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
Yes. And it has a lot of ties, I think, too, to this idea of infantilizing, because I think that a lot of times we're like, well, you shouldn't act that way, or that's so childish, and that's seen as like, let's rush the process again. And interestingly, I had a lot of care as a child for my parents. And I think part of that too, for me is how come I want more? I should have gotten it within the years that you're supposed to be a quote unquote child. But there are a lot of factors too, like the pressure for college that comes so fast now, or different experiences of invalidation or those traumas that can speed up the process internally, even when with specific people that or experiences that quote unquote should fix it or be protective, they don't do enough. I mean, when you think about it, we spend only 20 to 25% of our lives being children. Mm. And that's if you have a good childhood where you're allowed to be a child developmentally appropriate through each stage from birth into 18. That is not enough time. Mm-hmm. And like, I get it. We have to be adults and pay bills and rent and careers that we like. I get it. And is it bad if sometimes I need to cry like a three-year-old or throw a pillow or say, I don't want to, because if it is bad, well, I do those things and I'm not going to stop because I'm allowed to figure out how to regulate in ways that feed that part of myself that longs to still have a part of having a childhood. It's kind of why I always tell everyone to stay magical. Adults are so robbed. We are so robbed of so many things that I'm like, you know what? You believe in magic and fairies. You go for it. You believe in whatever you want that makes this world more palatable as long as you're not completely delusional in the actual clinical (laughs) diagnostic sense then I want to help you really badly. And I can love the caveat. Love, love it. (laughs) I'm curious. What's your Disney world? Oh, such a good question. My Disney world is either going to Cape Cod or a beach town. I like the beach. I don't like swimming. I don't Mm -hmm. like wet feet on sand. Mm -hmm. That's a tactile thing that I'll, I don't know if I'll ever work through. I've always been like that. But I just really like laying in a chair, especially early in the morning when nobody's there except for maybe a few old people and I can read a book and it's peaceful or I can sketch. And then I really love when I've had the opportunity to go back to the UK and see my friends there. That was a hard time in my life, but it was also one of the freest. It was my first time being an adult. It was my first time not having parents with an earshot. It's the first time I had my own place. There's something equally freeing as there was sadness that I really like to go back and visit. And it's partial, partial nostalgia. Yeah. But there's a part of it that also there's this pride of being like, wow, I became an adult here. Mm -hmm. And I also got to play here. I got to do both. And that's such a short period of time for us that it's really cool to be able to go back and get to do that for a few days with my friends. Yes. Yes. I love that. Mm, so good. Do do do. Jumping around. Tell us about Rainbow Recovery. How is this born? So, I had a private practice that actually started as my own business to sell artwork when I was in grad school. And I got my first eating disorder job my last year of grad school doing art therapy in a residential program. And I was being private paid, so it stayed open. And then in the pandemic, my partner and I decided that we wanted to 
rebrand into something that felt like it encompassed the things that we do. And I do eating disorder recovery and Rhonda's eating disorder and substance use recovery. And we're both pretty queer and we mainly work with queer people. So like, okay, rainbow marketing, I'm just as guilty as everybody else. And I really love good alliteration. The former English major in me gets excited. So that was kind of what we started to come up with. And the idea was that it would be, you know, this would be our child. We would build this business. I'm in my home office right now that actually has a back door. So if clients wanted to come, they could come. And the idea was instead of like going to an office, you can pull up to my house. You can park in the driveway behind my car. You can walk around to the backyard no one will know what you're here for. You can have your experience with me or with Ron, and then you can leave and no one will know. You get to have privacy. You don't need to be outed by seeing going to a queer center. I wanted it to be a space where people could not only heal, but heal in private. So much of our lives, especially as I think queer people become so public mm. just by virtue of coming out. Yeah. You know, the fact that your identity is actually assumed as something completely different than you until you tell people otherwise, mm. that I wanted people to have a space where they didn't have to do that again every time they went to therapy. So we kind of built it and it's been super fun. And then it expanded into education and consulting because I'm sure you've experienced this, right? There needs to be a balance between client contact clinical work. And for me, the wider scope of clinical work in order to have the energy to do the things I need to do. So this was a great way to create that balance. Yes, 100%. I love that. That's really interesting, that piece about queer people and having a lot of things be public information. And especially so that you can show up authentically and, and so that people can respect your identity, you have to kind of like share and change certain things. That's really interesting. I mean- I had that experience all the time. Funnily enough, an hour or two before I hopped on, a friend of mine who was at the same conference, ironically enough, had <laughs> called me and she was at the nail salon that we all go to, but she and I didn't know we went to the same nail salon. The nail tech was trying to reschedule my and Ron's appointment. We go together to get our nails done every two weeks. It's like our, it's like our little date thing. It's so fucking gay. <laughs> like, <laughs> I can't. And she was listening to them talk about me and him, but they were calling me her because I had never said explicitly to any of them, I like they, them pronouns, please use those. Because then I have to have a conversation about why. Mm. It's never just a, can you talk to me that way? It's a, I don't understand what does that mean? And I assume at this point in life, and we know we shouldn't assume that that would have just been the reaction. So I just don't have the conversation. Mm. And she was listening to them. And then they were talking about my cane and she just turned around, had pulled up my picture on Instagram and was like, is this them? And then my friend who's, who's sis actually explained to them that I use they, them pronouns, why I probably wouldn't have said anything and how they can refer to me next time I'm in. So mm -hmm. I didn't have to do the work. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes part of it for, for people I know for me is I am tired. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to teach people how to treat you all the time. And I think when you've had trauma and other things separate from gender identity or sexuality, right? Or race, where you've just been a lot of like your trauma, people how to treat you. And now to be affirmed in my identity and be treated like a person, I have to teach you how to treat me. And it's a little like, you know what? 
what if I just want a manicure? Yeah. And I really appreciate like today of all days, ironically, that someone did that work for me and showed me that I don't have to be the one to do it all of the time. And it's so exhausting. And I just keep thinking I'm a therapist. I have so many skills. I've been through so much therapy. If this is how I feel, I can only imagine how other people feel. Mm. Thank you for sharing. I think this reminds me, I can't remember who said this, but they were like, I just, I just want not everything to be about my gender identity in the sense that I don't have to always prove it or explain it or talk about that as the main thing you are thinking about when we exchange conversations. I just want friends and fun like everyone else sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure I've probably said something like that many times. And I'm sure I can think of lots of trans people that have publicly said things like that. And I just think the most interesting thing about me is not my gender. Mm -hmm. It might be a thing that makes me feel safer for people or not as safe for people, depending upon their opinions. Right. But ultimately like, I don't like you Mimi because of how you identify in terms of your gender. I like you because you're an amazing person to be around. You're super fun to talk to. And we've, avoided this podcast because chatting has been more fun than having to record a conversation. Like that has nothing to do with either one of our genders. Yeah. Like, why does that matter? But it does. It matters because we want people to talk to us the way that we want to be talked to. And so it becomes this center stage conversation that we want to be seen as just a really small part of identity. I had a friend say to me that another friend had said to them at work one day that they wished queer people would stop talking about how queer they are all the time. You know, cis hetero people don't do that. And my response to that has always been, well, because your identity is assumed and mine isn't. So you can go to work as a cis hetero, you know, woman and talk about your boyfriend and getting engaged. And that's a totally normal conversation. Mm-hmm. I go to work And I talk about my partner and because I present as more femme, people first assume I have a wife and that I'm a lesbian. Then I have to explain my gender identity. Then they find out my partner has been assigned male at birth. Then that's a whole conversation. And before you know it, we're not in a work meeting talking about work. We're talking about a part of my life that like, I just wanted you to know how to talk about me. That (laughs) did not need to be a session. Yes. It becomes your advocacy in a way that in certain spaces, it is really interesting to talk about the intersections, but also sometimes this is something you have to talk about in order to be treated as a human the way that you want to. And that can be really frustrating. It is. I mean, I get tired. I think, you know, it's November. So I always tell everybody, this is the end of training season for all of us, which means this is the tired season. So I think I'm probably more tired than normal anyway. And I, I just want my identity and people who have identities like mine to walk down the street and feel celebrated because our culture reflects back to us Mm -hmm. the same way as a black woman. I want you to see more faces like you everywhere that you go without Mm -hmm. it being fucking scary. Yeah. We deserve to be represented and celebrated in our culture without it becoming scary and dangerous or the only thing people want to talk about. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, good one. You have such a human and humble perspective on changing systems. And from my perspective, are able to recognize your own shortcomings without self-deprecating. 
I really appreciated when you were presenting at the meta conference. Something that I think was interesting for me was this idea that people have more compassion for your shortcomings when you have one more marginalized identity versus none. And it's almost like, well, yeah, but you're a marginalized person. So you get it. And your intent is sort of assumed. And I think sometimes that's something that's not talked about because it's like, yeah, but if you have no marginalized identity, then you can't relate. Like it's zero. I don't know. I guess kind of what are your thoughts on, um, how do you balance that as a person who, get some leeway with a certain marginalized identity, but not minimizing the fact that also people with marginalized identities have a better understanding because we get it. I mean, the reality is depending upon what pocket of the world you're in right now, I know I can say things that other people will be afraid to say something to me because then they would be assumed as transphobic when their point back to me could be completely valid. And I really hate that we've weaponized the idea that like, being racist or transphobic or homophobic is this noun in which you become, right? It is an adjective that describes really shitty behavior that is learned and can be unlearned to a certain extent. There are some human beings that I believe are too far gone and they're in politics. Um, (laughs) But I have to be self-aware if I'm in super mixed company And I'm going to say something that pushes the envelope because I think most people that know me know if I can say something that pushes the envelope, I will, it'll come out of my mouth without thinking that's who I am. And I have to think, but who will be hurt by doing that, knowing they can't say anything back, you know, Mm -hmm. where does my marginalization give me power in certain, you know, public situations. And then where is me actually being able to speak my truth the thing that's actually going to put me and the people with me in harm's way. And in that sense, I do have power, but it's the disenfranchisement of my power that can take other people with me. So it's a lot of self-awareness and a lot of labeling it. I say in many trainings and presentations that I can say things because of my identity that other people can't. Mm -hmm. I don't think that that's a bad thing. I don't think that I should get a free pass for talking about race the way that you can, Mm -hmm. right? The same way... I can talk about gender in ways that other people can't and people want to hear it and people will accept it. And people that don't like it usually are afraid to say something. Yeah. That's all true. And all of that doesn't change the fact that there are people in the world that have more power than us because of their identities. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a, such a beautiful way of putting everything. I think sometimes we hear one thing and then we think it means another thing that we're not encompassing. So for example, here, it's like, okay, someone with more privilege can't say something without getting as much flack because they don't hold certain identities, but that doesn't mean they can just go around and say whatever they want without consideration. But what it does mean is that we be conscious of how we have sort of the oppression Olympics sometimes and want to make sure we make space for if someone is saying something with an identity and someone is saying something without an identity, what is the truth or the helpfulness of that statement outside of the identity and also within it, because you can't, um, someone's specific experience is going to change it too. Of course. And isn't it also like whether or not we're speaking from our lived experience versus education, like a cis hetero person who's in a thin body speaking about transness and fatness 
even if they say the same things I I'm saying, they do not know the pain of those identities the way that I do. Mm-hmm. And that is why they need to, and I love you all sit down and shut up <laughs> because you've always been listened to yeah. your body's always going to be listened to, but people are finally waking up to listening to my body or your body. So mm-hmm. in situations where our education right? Our clinical expertise and our lived experience can come together to give people a richer experience Then I should be listened to. Mm-hmm. And so should you. Yeah. And in situations where you don't need lived experience plus clinical expertise, pay the other person where it's not emotional labor and baggage for them. Yeah. Ah, golden spot on. <laughs> okay. Your brilliant partner, Ron. Oh, obsessed. Y'all sent me just the nicest birthday gift that made me feel so loved. It was these beautiful flowers and they were pink, which is my favorite color. And I just want to know how you met and created such a beautiful relationship. Oh my gosh, this is so gross and I love it. It's my favorite. So I met Ron after actually being pseudo engaged to somebody else. (laughs) I know. How dare I? There were people before Ron. (laughs) I know. know. Even sometimes I'm like, oh my God, there were people before Ron. That's so sad. How dare you? (laughs) I know. You're not the only person to have that reaction. (laughs) I had signed up for internet dating with a friend, kind of like, I would say as a joke, I wasn't ready to date. And then I was like, well, I'm here. I guess I could go on a few dates. And I did. And they were all really terrible. Yeah. I did not enjoy dating. Mm-hmm. This was in, oh my God, 2009. Mm. Oh, what? I dating in 2009. That was before like Bumble and stuff. That wasn't cool. Friend, that was okay, Cupid. <gasps> OG. <laughs> okay. This is, oh, I'm so glad my mother will never listen to this podcast. He messaged me the day I was going to delete my account. And I don't even think he said something suave. I think he was just like, do you ever consider giving a nice guy a chance? And I was like, that's the sweetest opening line of internet dating, considering the experiences I had had. And I was like, okay, I'll talk to you. And then it turned out that he lived 20 minutes from my grandfather. And then it turned out that all of my favorite places in Connecticut to go as a kid all the places his parents took him because my mom's family is from New Haven, Connecticut, where we live now. So we actually had been in same places at the same time as kids, but had never met. Then I find out that his cousin was roommates with one of my brother's old close friends from high school. And that at some point in time, my brother and him could have potentially have been at a party together. (gasps) Right. So then we meet Easter weekend, 2009 at a coffee shop in downtown Fairfield where he was living. I was visiting my grandfather. I told my mom I was going on a coffee date. I was going to be gone for a few hours. I would be back. This is where I'm going. If you don't hear from me, send the police. (laughs) Because it's the internet in 2009. So, you know, I show up and there's a guy out front that from the side could have been Ron, but was definitely not the Ron that I signed up for and was a little intimidated. I don't know if this was a good choice. And then there's a white Jeep parked down the street. There's a girl inside and there's a guy with his head inside and it's Ron talking to his best friend's sister. 
Kelsey, who is in my wedding. She's lovely. We don't have to be upset with Kelsey. She's beautiful. She introduced herself. He gave me a hug. He asked me if I wanted to get coffee and if he could take me on a walking tour of Fairfield. Mm -hmm. And so he took me on a tour of Fairfield, which has a lot of old historic homes and it's on the shoreline in Connecticut. And I love the beach. So we got to see the beach and we walked around. Then we went back to this coffee shop that all of his friends like to hang out with and they ragged on him. And I love nothing more than embarrassing the shit out of Ron by ragging on him. And I have from the first time we met. So I joined right in and they were all like, you belong here. And that was it. It was like, I left that date He didn't kiss me. He walked me to my car. He was super polite. And I remember being like, you didn't fucking kiss me. I was cute for you. I drove back to my grandfather's house in this haze of like, how does this human being exist? How do I feel so comfortable with someone that I've just met? How is this real? And then that first year that we were together, right? So this is, this is the thing I need everyone to know. We were at Thanksgiving And Ron's dad meets my grandfather for the first time. And he looks at my grandfather and asks him if he had been to Africa at a certain meeting that Ron's grandfather had been invited to because they both did similar work. My grandfather for the U.S., his grandfather for Israel. They had all met before (gasps) on another fucking continent What? Ron and I are at Thanksgiving dinner being like, was this a government setup? (gasps) like what (laughs) is this like it is one of those you could genuinely write a movie about how there were generations of people that actually made us happen (gasps) without it ever being a thing and we have been together since March of 2009 and Um... that that's been it. We've never broken up. We've never thought about not living together. We moved in together six months after dating and we got engaged on his birthday that first year that we were dating. Oh my Uh, God. And that was it. He actually, he called all of my friends in the UK. They helped him get a ring and they arranged the whole thing. It was really beautiful. And it's just, I just feel really, really lucky. People don't always get to find a person that they feel like is actually their person. Mm -hmm. But like, that's my person. Even if we fell out of like romantic love with each other, he will always be my person. Wow. I know. I mean, that's really incredible having seen y'all interact like what, 12 years later, 13? Yeah. Math. It's still so beautiful and so cohesive and like, wow. I know. Sometimes I think about it, I'm like, how did that happen? I made so many poor choices before, Ron. And I mean, I don't know. I feel really, really lucky. Like, this is someone that when we started dating, I was in a smaller body. I wasn't physically disabled yet. Mm-hmm. I had mental health stuff because I always had PTSD, but um, I had a traumatic death of a family member through suicide while I was in grad school. Um, mm-hmm. My last year writing my thesis and that really spurned on this part of my PTSD and anxiety that since then is just not the same. And I don't think it ever will be. I think that's my grief that will always kind of be there for that person. Mm-hmm. And then coming out, having top surgery, having a hysterectomy, doing all these things. And the whole time he's just been like, no, I signed up for you. You signed up for me, right? If I told you tomorrow that I was a woman and I wanted to do all of this, you signed up for me. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, you're right. That's how I feel. We signed up for each other. This is, 
this is part of the deal. And yeah. not, it's part of the deal because you're supposed to stay married. We will leave each other in a second if we're unhappy. But when you love someone, you just don't love this shallow version of them. You love intrinsically who they are and everything else around you changes, right? Don't people get older? I'm going to get old someday. These tattoos are not going to look so good. <laughs> They're going to be wrinkly and fall into the floor and he's got to like it. And if They're going to make technology. It's a whole nother podcast. M's for the future. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I love that. I love that. And I think it really speaks to a little bit of that earlier piece where it's like gender has, has to become sort of this forward part of us or race has to become this forward part of us because people are not willing to accept it as a part of us, you know, and there's parts of us that we also bring to the table. I don't know. I think it's really interesting. Obviously love and relationships and sexuality are different for everybody. And I think that for me, when I look at this relationship and the friendships that have carried throughout the years that have responded so well to this, that's what authentic love looks like. Authentic love has nothing to do with whether or not you even understand how I identify. It's the idea that you love the authentic parts of me that make the room light up when we're in it together, that make you want to listen to me talk, that make us excited to see each other. And that shouldn't change no matter what label I ask you to use for me, nor should it change for whatever label you want me to use for you. That should always be consistent and constant until something about that authenticity and that person changes or they become inauthentic. Mm. That's really hard for people because that's being our most vulnerable selves And I mean, there's so many reasons why being vulnerable is hard for people. I just think that for me personally, I can remember like being in third grade and my mom yelling at my teacher for being like, they're just a vulnerable person and not vulnerable as in weak and not vulnerable as in incapable, vulnerable as in they're not going to stop feeling because you think this is not the time or place to not feel. Mm. That's not who they are. And I've just always been that way. I just have a lot of feelings. I always tell people I'm the end of mean girls. I don't go here. I just have feelings. Yes. (laughs) I love that. I see it as we're all on this journey towards more authenticity and closeness to who we are. And we want to show up because we want to keep honoring and finding and discovering that most authentic self that maybe we see glimpses of when we meet people and love them. Right. I mean, I don't know. Like the way that I think I light up a room is the way that you and Gloria lit up a room when I first met you both. There was that spark that you see in somebody else that you secretly hope you see in yourself. You know what I mean? And we don't need to know each other. We can share some rice balls and become best friends. One dinner is all it takes because when you, when someone is open to being authentic with you and you respond in kind with that same energy, mm-hmm. you can figure out right away if this is going to work or not. Yes. And then if it's not, you know, it's not for real reasons, not because of your own stuff. Mm. And I, again, much rather be friends that it feels that way with than keep trying to puzzle piece things together that aren't part of the same set all the time. Absolutely. It's easier to be vulnerable when you know, I trust you. We're in this for the long run because there's so much that I love and to keep getting to know about you. 
Mm-hmm. That's how I feel. Do, do, do. Okay. This one's going to be a little bit of a doozy because I didn't write it out the way a question That's should okay. go. <laughs> um, but I know we talked previously about uh, rupture and repair in relationships. And I wanted to talk a little bit about when people have different marginalized identities and there's a rupture in the relationship and how do you kind of, considering that like oppression Olympics where it's like, well, automatically your thoughts are more valid because of this identity or like, it's not safe to engage because I don't want to harm your exhaustion or like you have limited capacity. What do you do with those kind of relationships where there's like various support needs and it's not going to be equally reciprocal or um, things like that? It's a really great question. I mean, I think I always like to start out by letting someone know that I'm noticing a rupture or I'm experiencing one. And I don't know if it's a rupture within me about us or between us, Mm. but I know what I'm feeling in me. Are you feeling that in you or between us or both? Where is that happening? So then we can be on the same page because if I'm only feeling it within me, then it's an internal experience. If we're feeling it between us or in ourselves together, that's also a shared external experience that we can talk about. So I always like with people, whenever I have the words and the thinking to do so, to ask people to help me label for them and for myself. And then from there kind of go, when did the feeling start for you? This is when it started for me. So we don't have to talk about our differences or our identities or our power dynamics. I want to talk factually like, Last time we were together, I started to feel sad when you said A, B, and C. And since then, I've noticed this feeling of resentment every time you've texted me. I'm telling you this so that I don't have to carry resentment and sadness. Did you feel something in that moment? And then, you know, you might be like, I felt the same thing, you know, before I said that, this is the tone in your voice and it really hurt me, right? Okay, we had a miscommunication, right? That's a small thing. Then there are bigger things. Like I said something that I didn't know was racist, Thank you for calling me on my shit. I think the other thing with this is we all need to be humble. I can be wrong. In fact, I'm wrong 99% of the time. The world gets to see the 1% time where I'm right. Think about it. Social media is curated. When people listen to your podcast, right, or they see one of my posts online, you are seeing the 1% time I got it together. You are not seeing the 99 failures that took that 100th time. And so it's also being humble enough to know in those moments that while I'm feeling a hurt, it doesn't mean I didn't hurt someone else in the process. Mm. I'm equally able to harm as I am to heal. And it doesn't matter what your identity is. If you're a human being, that's what it is. Yeah. I love that. I think that's really cool. The part about internal noticing, like, is it a shared experience? That feels really, really cool. Well, and I mean, what I love about that is we can have global shared experiences, right? Like when generally trans people are saying reacting to politics, I can actually participate in a global experience with people and never have to talk about it. Mm -hmm. I can hold hurt with other people and I can hold solution with other people. And we don't have to do the whole big therapy. Let's talk about all of our feelings thing all the time, which don't get me wrong. I clearly love to talk and I really love feelings. But I also don't think we always have to do that. Mm-hmm. That would be very exhausting. And that's why we have containment and the ability to save things for later when we have more window of tolerance. Yeah. 
Oh, window of tolerance. So good. Yes. Shout out to my boss, Kim, for teaching me so much about the nervous system. <laughs> All right. One more big question. So pronouns. Um, I think there's been some really interesting things about like, okay, if you have pronouns for some people that feels like, let's talk about pronouns. Let's say them out when we meet because we want to normalize it for others. It's like, well, that's going to force some people to out themselves. And then there's also this question of, it doesn't feel like it fully represents my gender identity and the different parts of me. And so I'm curious for you, kind of your experience with pronouns and feeling like, does it capture your gender identity experience? Does it capture the last part I bring in is kind of like parts work where sometimes people are like that part of me is this gender, that part of me has these pronouns. And then sometimes it might miss out on some of that capturing. Oh, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I did a training where I just put in the chat I want to say passive aggressively, but it wasn't passive aggressive. It just like what felt like it. A YouTube link for when Schoolhouse Rock talks about nouns, adjectives, and pronouns. Because how I've decided to look at this is pronouns are a part of speech. Mm-hmm. They do have power when it comes to affirming people or not affirming people because of how we talk about them. And talking about people the way they want to be talked about when they explicitly tell us how they want to be talked about is important. If we don't tell people and then someone misspeaks about us, they're not going to know. And not everyone is really good about asking because it's not fully a part of their cultural sphere yet. In the most magical world, we would all introduce ourselves by saying like, hi, pronouns are they, them. How would you like me to talk about you? Would you like me to just use your name? Do you have pronouns you'd like me to use, right? And I try to encourage people to do that, for example, before group therapy, talking to each individual client about that, what pronouns they want, or do you just want to use your name right now? That's what feels most comfortable. Or when people do the whole like eye roll, I don't believe in pronouns. Well, you don't have a choice. They're a part of speech, but you can decide you don't want to use them and you want people to call you by your name and your name only. We get that choice. But to me, this is really more about how do we want to talk about people and how do we want to be talked about Mm -hmm. and how can we share that in ways that are okay? Understanding that grammar is grammar. Grammar is whole colonizing patriarchal white supremacy (laughs) thing all on its own that we could talk about. So the nerd in me is just like, I don't know, pronouns are just a part of speech, just like adjectives or nouns. And we can we can twist them and weaponize them or we can use them to heal and affirm people. And it's really, you know, I know we all say it's not always intent, it's impact, right? And I'm like, sometimes it is intent. Like with pronouns for me, it is intent. Someone that makes a mistake, I'm pretty graceful about that. And I also know when someone uses the wrong pronouns for me, I personally don't have a neurological reaction when I know I'm in a safe place. Hmm. When I'm not in a safe place, it has a different impact regardless of intent. So I also think what's hard is it's who you're with, the scenario, the safety of how you're feeling that day. Like it's so hard to hammer down. And I feel like if we can all just be like, hi, my name is, I use, right? I don't think it's a lot to ask to add a second sentence to an introduction Mm -hmm. to let people know this is how I want to be talked about. Mm. Yeah. That's really good and really helpful. 
especially that piece about the neurological safety, like you can tell the difference between when someone's trying and, and when someone is like, I don't care, usually because they'll say, I don't care. (laughs) I mean, I had a client say to me this week, their boss had, you know, I don't know, blatantly misgendered them, but misgendered them, realized they did it and then laughed about it instead of correcting Mm -hmm. themselves. And it became a whole thing. And they had to go to their boss in HR and talk about it. And their whole thing was, I don't care what you believe in. You don't have to believe in my identity, but at work, you do actually by law in Connecticut have to talk to me the way that I want to be talked to that makes me feel safe in the workplace. That's a requirement in this state. We don't have a choice. And why would you want to make someone feel uncomfortable at work? What is what is going on in your life that you need that kind of power right now? But again, mm-hmm. we're therapists. So of course, this is generally easier for me. I'm also used to people saying all sorts of things to me at this stage. And I've worked with people that were blatant white supremacists who voted for Trump and sat in my office. Like, I know, I know I've worked with people where I've been like, I don't know if this is going to be a safe therapeutic relationship, but I'm not publicly out. So I just don't have to say anything to you. And okay, this is how we're going to handle it. Cause this is community mental health. And I'm told I don't have a choice. Oh, community, mental nope. <laughs> community mental health. Bless every therapist. Um, so I think I've also had a varying amount of experiences, both out and not out of what feels safe to me and doesn't to know. And I think we need to remember everybody's learning based on their background mm-hmm. and it's different for each person. And I don't think that it's, I don't think it's hard to affirm people. And I also don't think that it's hard to have a little bit of grace. Yeah, Don't give too much, yeah. but I think a little of like, you might not know this, but I actually use these pronouns. And then if someone's like, oh, that's too hard, then oh, you're being a jerk. Yeah. Now you're being a jerk. I corrected you and now you're being a jerk. But if you didn't know, well, now, you know. Yeah. And do you feel like for you, pronouns express your gender identity? Oh, big question. I mean, I think I'm way too magical for a pronoun. I think I'm way too magical for a single adjective. Yes. (laughs) I'm like, the English language cannot sum up how wonderful that you are. All the things. I think that that's a thing that I like remember is especially as an artist, there are things that I personally can say about me and other people in art that there are not words for, for me Mm. and the way that my brain works. So for me, the pronoun is the smallest way of my identity being forced to be present in a room and Mm. to know that that identity is safe in that room or not safe in that room. In terms of it affirming my gender, I feel like there are a million paintings at the MoMA or the Met that could much more be a a symbol of how I feel about my gender than a word. And artist brain means, I think, in images and colors rather than in words. For someone that's versed in words, they're going to be able to pin down a pronoun that feels best for them. Mm. I love that. I feel like it also signals, is it safe for me to tell you more? Like if you're going to take this part, then we can keep discussing and keep honoring more of me. Yep. I have to get something real quick because it comes to mind. Hold up. Let's see if I can get it. No. Are you ready to be read to? Oh my gosh. Yes. (laughs) Story time me. Yes. (laughs) Oh, the face, the face on the cover also the best face. Just the best. 
best human ever. I'm obsessed. I'm so glad I get to bring this in because I'm obsessed with Alok. They're just, if you haven't heard them speak, um, it's just so beautiful. And when you were talking, I was reminded of this piece of their book, which is called Your Wound, My Garden, which the title alone is poetry and beautiful in itself. And this little section is called pronouns. And it says, we categorize English words into nine parts of speech. Many words can be more than one. Present can be both a noun and a verb, but can be a conjunction and a preposition. I can be a pronoun, an apology, a threat. The premise of speech is the promise of it. But what about those of us for whom there are no words? Being trans means existing in the underbelly of language. It's not that we don't exist, it's that we have been written out of language. Pronouns then aren't just about the ability to use a word like she, they're ultimately about our ability to be. This has never just been about who gets to speak, this has always been about who gets to live. This year alone, there have been over 100 pieces of anti-trans legislation in the US. I spent some time reviewing the bills, watching the arguments, reading the news, what quickly becomes evident is that the struggle over pronouns isn't about diction, is it's about dehumanization. A pronoun is a word we use to stand in for a noun. A noun is a thing, something that empathically and unequivocally exists. We are not allowed to exist. They use their adjectives to deny us our pronouns because they do not believe we are nouns. To them, we are verbs. They call us dangerous because we are distracting, deceiving, destroying. These are not merely things we do. These are things we are always doing, never being. I sat there watching them use me as a proxy to have conversations about themselves. Increasingly sorry. I, my, am suddenly finding it difficult to use pronouns. Over time to you now, this person writing could no longer see its hands in front of in a dress. This hairy animal, it's almost as if this degenerate creature began to unravel in front of neurons, muscle, ligaments, nuisance. This delinquent, this freak, this tried to call for help, but there were no words to be found, just inchoate noise. This static peach fuzz frequency between radio stations. Never forget, things are not only spoken into existence, they are also spoken into extinction. So. Yes. Oh, so such an emotional response. Um, the reason why I love art as a way of describing things, and one of the reasons why I got into art therapy is actually coming from um a Jewish background one of the stories that I heard growing up about why my grandfather forced my mom and uncle to play a musical instrument and get into art is that during the holocaust as we know what they specifically did was they went after Jewish music and art and they went after mm. all of the archives that held the history of trans people mm. so there is a whole history of us as trans people and of us as Jewish people, of art, of music, of culture that was purposefully eradicated so that we wouldn't just get rid of people. We would actually 
fully extinct the idea of a group of people. Mm. And so to me, every time I make art instead of use words, every time I put an image out there, I am helping to create what was taken from all of us because it didn't just rob me or Jewish people or trans people. It actually robbed everybody of culture, of beauty, of understanding. And I just think that so beautifully speaks to how the argument will never be about the words, right? It'll never be about the paintings. It'll be about the right to exist or not exist. And the fact that any human being thinks that they should have that power over someone. Mm. That's so beautifully said. It's so true. And Alok talks about this in another podcast where it's like, there's such erasure of the concept of transness or the concept of people existing so that we see it as novel. And then we can say, oh, well, that's a new thing that's come up and it's not relevant. But when it's historically rooted, when there's ancestral patterns and there's people over generations, you can't erase the voices. Yeah. Wow. We did it almost. Oh, we we did it. We finally did it. It took months. (laughs) But there's still two more questions. We can do it. But these are are maybe different vein. (laughs) Oh, and also I highly recommend this book and I would say to order it. However, I think it's out of stock because it's amazing. Um, And I know this poem, I didn't even do justice because there's the way that it's written on the page is a piece of art as well. And so I highly recommend if you can check it out, but I want to know what your favorite foods are. Oh my gosh. Grilled cheese and ice cream. (gasps) I I love a good grilled cheese. I love cheese. Can we do a podcast about cheese? Yes. Cheese is so delicious. And for me, cheese has been one of those foods where it hasn't mattered. Eating disorder or not, I can't turn down a cheese. Yes. Can't turn down an ice cream. Yes. Love an ice cream. Mm. Um, Love a French fry. And I I tell everyone when I... When I was having my hysterectomy and top surgery and and eating was actually physically difficult because of pain, the joke was my therapist was like, remind Ron to keep French fries in the house. And he bought an air fryer and he would just make them and bring them up to me wrapped in bandages in this reclining chair and be like, you need to eat. And I'll be like, I don't care if it hurts. It's so good. (laughs) Just cheese and French fries, ice cream. These are the things that I don't know, like they're just good. Yes. There's something so connecting about them. I love foods where I'm like, I could eat this anywhere. Yes. Ah, cheese is amazing. I love it. And uh, how are you becoming? Oh. As if I didn't already take you through a therapy journey in this podcast. Can I, can I grab something to share with you? Yes. So you're going to, you are not going to know you inspired this, but. (gasps) What? Yes. What do you mean? Like, what did you do? Confused. (laughs) So before we met, the art therapy program I teach in was doing an art show. And the show was on something about growing our authenticity during COVID. And I Mm. had started my coming out process then. So I had made, so this is a little piece of art that I had made. 
and this is me and my ancestors, right? <sighs> to be together. I'll send you pictures, but the piece was actually named after your work. It, I called it the lovely becoming. You did not. I did before we met. Wait, what? Yeah. Before we met. You had done an interview with Rebecca for Project Heal, and I had been really moved by this idea of the lovely becoming, and it stuck with me. And when I was making this, I was like, oh my God, this is a thing. So I wrote a poem, and that's what I'm going to share with you. I'm going to make Mimi cry, everybody. And just like that, you have arrived, the lovely becoming, the simultaneous moment of birth and death, the ascent and descent collide into a ravaging explosion. And each, in each dark space, there is a glimmering of something stronger and greater than hope. There is home, so firmly rooted that your deadly descent has birthed new life, abundance. You have become the lovely becoming. I was waiting until we did this podcast to share it with you. You! I'm evil. This is the most beautiful thing. Yeah, wow. there was something just about the way that you present that idea and the way that you have phrased things has so much been like a that is so easy. Why don't other people get it? Mm. Because we spend our whole lives becoming until we become undone. That's all life is. Life is becoming until you become undone. Ah, oh, that's so deep. That is the most- Got that from you. <laughs> I'm just like so deeply, it's no right words, but I love that it says home and I love that the ancestral pieces there. And I love that you, like, I just, I think you're amazing. And uh. I know. Well, I think you're amazing. I think what you put in the world is actually like truly so important, like separate from our friendship. I just think what you have to say really matters. And like, I look at this little piece and I know people can't see the podcast, right? But I make these little dolls. Um, so there's this this coffin and they're kind of laid to rest, right? And there's this little doll and this doll has like, it has a fork, a knife and a spoon so it can eat in the afterlife. Recovery forever. Recovery forever, <laughs> ha ha. But it's got these pictures of actual like black and white photos of older people and like bits and bobs from nature that I had collected. It becomes this little nest of like this idea that you become until you become undone. Mm-hmm. And, and we don't know what that looks like. We don't get to know what that looks like. We only get to know what the journey looks like. Wow. Oh my God. Yes, I remember it's... that episode, that pot, that thing. And I kept telling Rebecca, I was like, I don't know if we should take it down. I don't know if it was helpful. It was so helpful for so many people, myself included. I know. Well, we just really love each other now, so it's fine. Yes. I mean, there's no ending to that. (laughs) But I think this is, I think this can be a really beautiful reminder for people listening that you don't know how people react to what you put in the world as a human being. Mm -hmm. You have hope of what that might mean to people. But like, to me, this is such a beautiful moment where we each actually get to say to each other, hey, that thing you put into the world, like it touched me, like truly, and it moved me and it created a bond that we didn't know was there for each other, but it happened. And like anybody could put something out into the world the minute they're listening to this that could do that for somebody else. Because that's what happens when you embrace being authentic, not only to yourself, but 
as the space you take up in the world. Wow. I feel so lucky for shout out to uh, Marriott for sponsoring this friendship. Yes. Thank you, Marriott. Thank you. Rice balls. Thank you. Meta project heal. Thank you for just being you. I'm so glad that you exist just as you are. I'm glad you exist just as you are. The world's pretty lucky to have us. Ah, They are. (laughs) 